Acts chapter 14. I count it a privilege to be able to be with you and to share God's word with you. Um, I want it to be just that, God's word. I don't want it to be something that it's not. And uh, by God's grace, I hope that it is clear. Um, so if you know my testimony, uh, I was saved at the age of five. My parents were born again by Pastor Bob Potter's ministry while they lived here. Um, after my parents got saved, they moved to southern Ohio. And so we lived in southern Ohio, a little town called Zanesville, for about 10 years. And then, I, then we moved back up here. And when we moved back up here, we became part of Grace Church of Mentor. And so I went off. I, I graduated from school, uh, high school. I went off to college, and I studied biology education. And I got my undergrad in biology education. And um, like I said, I was saved at the age of five, and I, I felt confident of my salvation. I felt confident that God was leading me into education, in particular science education. I loved to teach. I loved science. I loved dissecting things. I loved, you know, DNA and, and all that, and just kind of that kind of thing. So I, I graduated from college, and I came back to Mentor because I loved Grace Church. And my wife, who also, uh, her parents were born again here at Grace Church. They loved Grace Church too, and she loved Grace Church, and I loved her, and she loved me. And so we got married, and we just wanted to just really invest in here. So for about, I don't know, about three or four years, we taught. And, and frankly, I felt very comfortable where God had me from the standpoint of doing God's will in the classroom, uh, my Kelly and I, we were youth sponsors in the youth group. And it wasn't really until I turned about 26 or 27 years old that I really took seriously the mandate, and not just the suggestion, but the mandate of sharing the gospel with people. Like, I went on mission trips, and I helped out at VBS. And I even, you know, in the youth group as a sponsor, you know, would, would you know, we do the war, we do outreaches, and, and I took that very seriously. But I really didn't take seriously uh, my responsibility to share the gospel with people that I came into contact a lot. You know, so I lived in, in Painesville, and we lived right around the corner from T&T Bakery, and I would get donuts for the school that I taught at, and, and, um, and I'd pick them up, and I'd see the same lady every day, and I'd say, hey, Mary, how you doing? Da, da, da. we just, you know, talk shop, and, and really didn't think much at all about where she was going to spend eternity, until God started working in my heart, and, and it was like, it, it wasn't like all of a sudden, but, but it was pretty fast once the Lord started opening my eyes. And when he did, he showed me just the, he, he showed me, and, and I'm sure those of you who are, are much more mature than I am, um, he, he shows you just the diversity of the people that you run into and that you rub shoulders with. So at that time, I was very aware of the diversity that was on my street where I lived. So I had four neighbors that I interacted with uh, pretty regularly. One set of neighbors, and by the way, I no longer live there anymore. I've since moved. I try to make it a point of not using illustration of current neighbors, else they're watching a live stream. And then like, so Jeff and Esther, if you're watching this, I'm not going to talk about you. Um, but, but I had one set of neighbors that were part of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you're familiar with the Baha'i faith. It's, it's a, I don't even know how you translate that. I'm sorry. 
So I, I looked at the Mrs. Stoller trying to translate Baha'i. It's B-A-H-A-I. There you go, Baha'i. I want to be careful about that. So the Baha'i faith, which is a very Eastern mystical uh, belief system, it's, it's very, um, uh, what would you call it? pluralistic? Like, you find your truth, and I'll have mine. And their whole thing was, if you live a good life, in the next life, you'll come back as a better life form. So we had them. Next to them, we had a, a minister who is uh, a former pastor here and mentor, actually, uh, for a Disciples of Christ Church, which I believe he was born again. But just how he handled the Bible and what he thought of communion and what he thought of, of really how literal we should understand the Bible was, was markedly different. Across the street, we had a same-sex couple that was very, very friendly and good friends. They loved our daughters, but clearly there were some, some spiritual barriers. And then next to them was a, a younger couple with a small child that had immigrated from the Dominican Republic. And we got to know them. They were our next-door neighbors there at the time. And we got to know them. But they were very, very quiet. And when they did speak English, you know, English was a second language to them. And so when, when they did speak English, it was very, very broken. And so conversation was difficult. And I say all that to, to just really ask ourselves the question, okay, so let's say you're plopped in that neighborhood. Do they all need Jesus? Yes, they do. They all need Christ the Savior, right? Um, will they be saved the same way? And when I say the same way, will they need to go to Christ recognizing themselves as sinners, recognizing their own need for a personal Savior, turning from their sin, turning to Christ, being born again? Will they all be saved the same way? The answer is yes. So when the gospel is shared with them, will it be shared in the same manner? And the answer is, the answer is probably not. So I want you to think about the cubicle that you work or the neighborhood that you live in or the people that you interact with. And think about the diversity that's encompassed just with those individuals. We have the same gospel as they did 2,000 years ago, right, that we're going to read about in Acts 14. We have the same commandment, go into all the world and share the gospel. So that hasn't changed. But will our audience change? And will their response change? And the answer is, yes, it will. And so what I want to leave with you today is this. As the gospel goes forward, we should expect and prepare for different audiences and different responses. Okay? As the gospel goes forward, we should expect and prepare for different audiences and different responses. Now, uh, I have this up here just as a, a quick review. I'm not going to be using uh, the, the PowerPoint uh, extensively, but I do want to... Um, Sorry, I can't multitask. I do want to just quickly review what we had covered last week, or the questions that we asked. The so what of the book of Acts, right? What is my role? In this whole Great Commission thing, what is my role? Not everyone has the role of evangelist. Not everyone has the role of pastor. Not everyone has the role of elder. Not everyone has the role of teacher. But what is my role in the Great Commission. Second of all, to whom is God sending me? And that's a really important question to ask because it assumes something. It assumes that God is sending me. And He is. God has sent us. We are called ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Ambassadors have a message and they represent someone. 
And thirdly, as I go, who is God bringing to me? Who is God bringing to me? And this third question acknowledges the fact that where we are sent may not be exactly to whom we share the gospel. Meaning this, as we're being sent, God often brings other parties to us to hear the gospel. That's the story of the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, that's your church history. The fact that God sent messengers with the gospel into the world carrying it first and foremost to the nation of Israel. Yet, in the process, Gentiles heard that gospel and responded to that gospel. And that's really how we see the flow of thought throughout the book of Acts. So we're in Acts chapter 14. Acts 13 was the first part of Paul's first missionary journey. And I have a map up here just to show where on the planet Paul went in his first missionary journey. He started off in Antioch. That was the first church plant off of Jerusalem. And so you have where the Christians are first called Christians. They're in Antioch. They take off. And in chapter 13, Paul travels from Antioch to Cyprus, and then from Cyprus to Perga. And then most of the action in chapter 13 takes place in that city, the farthest north, called Pisidian Antioch. Now today, we're going to be looking at what God does through Paul in the cities of Iconium. We'll talk about uh, Lystra and Derby, but primary Lystra. Okay? That's where most of the action takes place. Okay? So, the main point that I wanted to leave with you tonight as the gospel goes forward, we should expect and prepare for different audiences. So, and then also for different responses. Let's start off just by looking at Acts 14 and what's going on. Okay? So chapter 14 and verse 1. In Iconium, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, namely Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding region. Okay? So we're going to fast forward here because in verses 7 through, oh, probably about 18 to 19, you have much of the action taking place there in Lystra. Okay, but verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the crowds, they succeeded in stoning Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. Then he backtracks. Okay, so Paul goes from Pisidian Antioch driven out of there because of the antagonism of the Jews, he goes to Iconium, preaches the gospel in Iconium where it's well received. However, some rascals from Pisidian Antioch came over, stirred up the crowds, and forced Paul and Barnabas to hightail it out of there. Where do they go? They go down to Lystra. 
where God gives them primarily a pagan audience. This pagan audience responds in a very favorable way. Yet, these Jews that were opponents of the Gospel continued to follow Paul, traveling, in some cases, over 100 miles just to stir up the crowd to get against Paul and Barnabas. And they succeed. And there in Lystra, Paul faces antagonism again. So he leaves and goes to Derby. But when all that's said and done, he backtracks all the way back to Antioch. And so we get down to verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered at the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. That's the end of Paul's first missionary journey. And it seems like it ends on a good note. I mean, when you read verse 27, that sounds good. Paul came back to Antioch, where he started. The Christians that had sent him. If you were to go back to Acts 13, right at the beginning, you have the elders of the church praying and fasting, being convinced. Paul and Barnabas, you go. And so they go. And out they go. And they carry the gospel. And then they come back in giving a good report. Sounds like a great end of a story. But the fact of the matter is, is it's not that simple. They faced quite a bit of quite a bit of diversity when it came to their audience and quite a bit of diversity when it came to their response. So first of all, I want us to look at the audience that they faced. The audience that they faced. Chapter 14 at the beginning, they faced primarily a Jewish audience in Iconium. A Jewish audience. Well, why is that significant? Well, in chapter 13, Paul preaches to a Jewish audience in Pisidian Antioch. He goes to a synagogue. This is his MO. He goes into a city. He goes into the synagogue. They give him a a hearing. Well, why is it that Paul had so much like clout or what gave him the reputation to be able to just walk into a synagogue and start speaking? It's because of his own Jewish heritage. You see, Paul was a Jew. Paul was a student of the Jew, a student of the Jewish rabbis. In fact, the most famous teacher at the time a fellow by the name of Gamaliel, was Paul's teacher. And in fact, if you want to, in the side margin, put Philippians chapter 3 there in the section. Because Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives his Jewish credentials. You know, we think of Philippians chapter 3 as the the, the passage that says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and all these things that were wonderful, I considered them dung so that I might know Christ. Well, you have to understand that all of those things earlier in the passage that Paul lists, give him a hearing in these cities that he's going to. So when he comes into a city like Iconium, and he goes into a city like Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, they're like, whoa, this is a student of Gamaliel. We should give this guy a hearing. And then he shares the gospel with them. Okay, This was primarily a Jewish audience. So he would talk about the history of the Jews. He would talk about men like David. He would talk about Old Testament prophecy. He would talk about how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
he would talk about how Jesus Christ not only was the sacrifice for their sins, but he was the perfect sacrifice in that the blood of all the bulls and all the goats and all the things that they sacrificed wouldn't be sufficient enough. But the interesting thing is, is that when he would go to a pagan audience, his message was a little bit different. Okay? So as we're in Acts 14, his audience in Iconium was Jewish, but his audience in Lystra was primarily pagan. So let's see what happens here. Verse 8 of Acts chapter 4. This is where we'll pick up the action. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him, he'd seen that he had faith to be made well, and said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet, and he lapped. The Greek language in there is he leapt up, he jumped, and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And so they began calling Barnabas Zeus, who was the chief god, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief Speaker, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So you see what's going on? Paul, Barnabas, go to this pagan city. They authenticate the message of the gospel with a miracle because that's what the miracles did. They weren't just a show of power. They weren't just to wow an audience and gather you know, a following. They were to authenticate the gospel. So they authenticate the message of the gospel by healing this man who had been lame from birth. And the people see it. And they're like, the gods have come here. The pagans who were worshiping Zeus and all of these other Greek pantheon, the Greek pantheon of gods they worship, they're with us. See, at the time, there was this folk tale that kind of went around that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited villages in the past and they dressed themselves up as just commoners. And people just overlooked them. They were looking for a place to stay. And so um, as they went from place to place, the people rejected them because they didn't really recognize them. And so as a result, Zeus and Hermes moved on to somewhere else and withheld his blessing from them. And so they weren't going to make that same mistake twice. Zeus and Hermes were here. Let's give them what they deserve. And so they start to present sacrifices. You know, the priest of the temple of Zeus is bringing in the animals and they're about to sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on. I mean, they don't speak Lyconian. Okay, I mean, in the Lyconian language is how all this was going on. So when they find out, they do a very Jewish thing. You say, what do you mean? Well, verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes. That's what Jews do when there's blasphemy. Remember when Christ said, you know, when he claimed to be who he was before the Jewish leaders the night that he was about to be crucified, and they tore their robes and they say, what more evidence do we need? Let's crucify him. Well, that's what Paul and Barnabas are doing here too. They're tearing their robes. They say, no, 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 stop. But I want you to notice what their message is. They don't start talking about David. They don't start talking about Old Testament prophecy. They don't start talking about the biblical Levitical form of, of sacrifice. Look what they say. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? And actually, some translations have this word, friends. This is a very amicable term. Friends, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain or futile things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet He did not leave Himself without witness and that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Verse 18, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Why is this significant? Do you see anything in there about Jesus? What Paul said? Do you see anything in there about the Old Testament? I mean, if you go a chapter back and you see what Paul said at Pisidian Antioch, he's talking very much about the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 2 and Psalm 16. He's not doing that here. And in fact, if you go to Acts chapter 17, where Paul is on Mars Hill, and he's talking with more Greek polytheists, he's actually saying much of the same thing he says here. Is he watering down the gospel? Is Paul going soft? No. He's considering his audience. The gospel is the same. But he's considering his audience. Paul didn't mention Jesus. He didn't quote Old Testament Scripture. He didn't speak of judgment even when they were setting other gods before him. Paul pointed them to the God of creation because what he was doing is exactly what he did in chapter 13. He pointed out areas of agreement but also pointed out areas of disagreement. Their multitude of gods was vain and futile. The God who created them is the one true God. Not only that, but He is a God of mercy. Look in verse 15. We are also men of the same nature. Preach this gospel to you that made that you should turn to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Verse 16. In all generations gone by, He permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He's not giving a pass on sin. He's being merciful. And he's appealing to these individuals to respond, to turn from these vain things, and to turn to the one true God. You say, okay, so what? This is a fascinating story. But how does this relate to me in 2018? First of all, being ambassadors of Jesus Christ, you must know who your audience is. To evangelize effectively, This isn't just a how-to. This is a principle of sharing the gospel. You need to know who you're talking to. You know, when I was in college, I went to a fast food place, and I was getting a bite to eat, and a guy came in, and and there were probably like seven or eight of us in the the restaurant, and I'm just sitting there waiting in line, and and he took out a stack of tracks, and he went boom, 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 and he went to every single person in the restaurant and just handed out tracks, handed out tracks. And I mean, it was legitimate gospel track. And I looked at it, and I was like, I wish I had the courage of that guy. I mean, that would scare me to death to just kind of go, 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 And I asked him, you know, I was talking with him, but hey, you know, so how long have you been doing this? And he's like, this is what I do. This is what God's called me to do. I go to a place, and wherever I go, however many people are there, I just give them all tracks. And you think about that, and you know what? Something is better than nothing. You have to admit, something is better than nothing. And handing out gospel tracks can be an effective way when you don't have the opportunity to have a relationship. But can I tell you, relationships 
are effective vehicles to communicate the gospel. And sometimes when we don't have the relationship and we just give them our script, for lack of better words, we actually might be talking way over their heads. So, as an illustration, I have a younger brother who teaches advanced mathematics at a school down in, in Florida. Okay, if you go on YouTube and you type up his name, Tim Hicks, and he has a YouTube channel, it will put you right to sleep. Okay, because he's talking about calculus and he's talking about functions and he's talking about all this stuff and, and there's YouTube videos galore of all this. And you know what? I sit there and watch it and there might be a, a select few of you that would really get your kicks and giggles out of, of watching something like that and, and learning and maybe you know, really understanding those of you who are engineering and, and higher level math. I'm not that guy. I watch that and, and after two or three minutes I'm, I'm gone. It's just I don't get it. He gets it, though. And if he were to talk to some of you who are thinking that way, you'd get it, too. But I can't say, just because I don't get it, that it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes perfect sense to him. But it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, I would have to go back to remedial algebra to just get you know any type of sense of bearing. He totally gets it but he's talking way over my head. There are some times when we have the gospel, we have the good news, and, and we have a message that we need to share that, that when we don't know who it is that we're really talking to and don't know them well and haven't really stopped to ask them what they believe or stopped to listen to their journey, where they are spiritually, that we just jump into the deep end of the pool and as a result, speak way over their heads. Look at how basic Paul gets in Acts chapter 14. God created you. God is good. God is merciful. And He is the one true God. And oh, by the way, what you're worshiping is futile and worthless. You know, it wasn't just like, you know, basics of, of, of theism 101. It was also a statement, a clear statement of what they weren't. It wasn't just, hey, we have so much in common. Or here's some basic truths that won't offend you in the least bit. No. Turn from your futile ways to this one true God. And by doing that, he won an audience. Look at verse 18. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So by knowing our audience, by emphasizing common ground, and by emphasizing the distinguishing factors and the error, we can effectively communicate the gospel and thus expect and prepare for different audiences. Who has God called in your life? And have you taken the time to listen to them and to talk to them? And by the way, not just the people to whom you feel sent, but the people that God is bringing to you. Okay. And secondly, you should expect and prepare for different responses. Paul continues to come into contact with stubborn, unbelieving Jews. 
And yet that didn't deter him from going to the synagogues. I'm kind of backtracking here, but going back to the beginning of chapter 14. It says, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together. How did that go the last time you went into the synagogue, Paul? Not very good. I mean, they listened to you initially, but then they got pretty upset and they drove you away. Fast forward. Let's look very briefly. Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, I think that's how you pronounce that, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Why is that significant? Because at Acts 17, there are several things that had happened to him. He had been stoned. He had been imprisoned. He had been humiliated. He'd been driven out of at least three or four cities. And it says, verse 2, and according to Paul's custom. Paul should expect different responses, but why is he continuing to go to the same place? Because the fact of the matter is, is just because he's going to the same type of people doesn't mean that the response is going to be the same every single time. More on that later. There was persistence in Jewish opposition. Back to Acts chapter 14. Okay. Verse 2 of Acts 14. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren... And then look over at verse 19. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged. So they're traveling from city to city to city to come and oppose Paul. I don't know how they found out where he went, other than there's a lot of converts in his wake. There are people that are trusting in Christ, they're following. They were devoted to overturning the gospel ministry. These Jews were more than just unbelieving. They were intentional in their lack of faith. There was no middle ground or room to be swayed by them. They were persuasive in their efforts in stirring up the crowds. Think about this. They were going to different cities and stirring up the crowds, creating rumors, and they were pretty effective. Because what happened? The crowds turned from supporting Paul and Barnabas to being against them. They tried to stone him in Iconium. They were successful in Lystra. These were pretty effective guys in what they were trying to do, or girls. Why is it that they were so effective? I mean, wasn't Paul and Barnabas, weren't they doing what God wanted them to do? Why would God allow for this level of opposition? And the fact of the matter is, it's more than just human intellect that's at play here. There are spiritual forces that are fueling this opposition. And we must not forget that when we carry the gospel to our world. It's not just a battle of intellect. This is a spiritual war that is going on. There are some people that you will share the gospel with that they will hear it one day and the next day are posting anti-Christian things on their social media. And it makes no sense whatsoever. And you think, wait a second, I thought they were response. I, it sure looks like they're about to trust Christ. And then all of a sudden, it's like 
a complete 180. Where does that come from? It wasn't that they just weren't able to connect the dots. It's because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. Listen, in our Western civilization, the whole kind of spiritual warfare, it's almost relegated to movies and Halloween costumes. You know, the whole spooky, mystical, like, you know, the evil goblins, you know, it's, just, it's almost cartoonish. We're, 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 we're too intellectual, we're too well-versed, and so our thought is, if I could just maybe say the right words, if I could just turn the phrase, if I could just maybe give a different example that'll help them understand, that's when we'll get them. And I'm telling you, it's not that simple. Yes, God changes hearts. He does the work. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. To be sure, how can they hear without someone to proclaim it? That's you, that's me. To be sure. But there is spiritual warfare going on, which helps us to understand the persistence of these opponents. The fact that the gospel can change, the response to the gospel can change immediately. We see it in the life of Christ. I mean, literally within a week, you have people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're waving palm branches to Jesus. Come save us. Save us now. And within a week, what are they crying? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. How is it that in Lystra, they're throwing a citywide party for Paul and Barnabas? They're about to make sacrifices. They're about to slaughter animals. They're about to anoint these men as gods. And then within three verses, you know, verse 19, Jews from Antioch and Iconium having won over the crowds. Just that simple. And what do they do? They stoned Paul. They stoned Paul. Not like they said, boo. They stoned him. And this wasn't like the formal Jewish tradition of stoning the heretic. This was a mob. So the guy that they're celebrating, this is Zeus, this is Hermes. Next day, this is Toast. He's dead. Yet, we see not just the persistence of these unbelievers, we see the persistence of Paul's evangelism. Even though they were just thrown out of the synagogue, even though they were rejected by the Jews, even though... They, they, were, they, were, they were almost stoned in Iconium, and they were stoned. He was stoned in Derby. yet there was a persistence of the gospel. Look in verse 20. They thought he was dead, but while the disciples stood around him, and that's kind of a big deal. That's not just an offhanded phrase, because there were disciples that were there. That would have been an encouragement to Paul. I mean, imagine that, being stoned. You think of the physical pain, but there's also got to be a lot of emotional pain too. The humiliation the frustration, being alone. God, what am I doing? You gave me this message. I'm doing the right thing. And the wrong thing is happening. It says, when the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. I think that's a miracle. I really do. The Bible doesn't say explicitly, so don't hold it as like, oh, this is Bible fact. But I really do believe that's a miracle. That he could get up, 
enter the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they preached the gospel to that city and had, many, had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. There's a persistence there of Paul in his presentation. And there's also a love for the people that he was sharing the gospel. You know, earlier on I said, do we, you know, when I, we kind of looked at Paul's uh, modus operandi, his M.O., for going into the synagogue or going to a place, and even though he faced opposition, still proclaiming the gospel. So, Paul, why are you doing this, even though you kind of see what's coming? And I made the statement that, that just because you might have the same audience, or I'm sorry, just because you might have the same type of audience in the same environment, you might not always have the same response. And so when we think of our own opportunity to share the gospel, often we broad brush the response of those we come into contact with. I mean, there might be some, frankly, that we assume what their response is going to be before we even have the opportunity to articulate the gospel. And so we almost prejudice them, or, or, or we're prejudiced against them because how we think they'll respond. Can I tell you that God can save anybody? We praise the Lord. I mean, if he can save me, he can save anybody. And that's what Paul said, 1 Timothy. You know, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the example. If he can save me, he can save anybody. And looking at our culture, looking at the response, if God has given us the same message to the same category of people, can we expect different responses? I want to read the testimony of a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. How many of you ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Okay, a handful. Okay. Let me read your testimony. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield, a former tenured professor of English in women's studies at Syracuse University, converted to Christ in 1999 in what she describes as a train wreck. Her memoir, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and I'd highly encourage you to get that book. You can get it on Audible, too, if you want to listen to it or whatever. Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield, chronicles that different journey, difficult journey. Rosaria is married to Kent, a Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, and is a homeschool mother, author, and speaker. Raised and educated in liberal Catholic settings, Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBT advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University and then served in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse University from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory, specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGBT student group, wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples, and actively lobbied for LGBT claim aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, while Rosaria was researching the religious light and their politics of hatred against people like me, she says, she wrote an article against promise keepers. A response to that article triggered a meeting with Ken Smith, who became a resource on the religious right in their Bible, a confidant and a friend. In 1999, after repeatedly reading the Bible in large chunks for her research, Rosaria converted to Christianity. Her first book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, details her conversation and the cataclysmic fallout in which she lost everything but the dog, yet gained eternal life in Christ. Rosaria's second book, Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ, addresses questions of sin, identity, and repentance that she often encounters during speaking engagements. She discourages the use of the term gay Christian and disputes conversion therapy in part because heterosexual sin is no more sanctified than homosexual sin. 
Her heart's desire is for people to put the hands of the hurting into the hands of the Savior who equips us to walk and grow in humility. In her third book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World, Rosaria explores how God used the humble couple's sinful invitation to dinner to draw her, a radical, committed unbeliever, to himself. With the story of her conversion as a backdrop, she invites us into her home to show us how God can use the same radical, ordinary hospitality to bring the gospel to our lost friends and neighbors. Such hospitality sees our homes not as our own, but as God's tools for the furtherance of his kingdom as we welcome those who look, think, believe, and act differently from us into our everyday, sometimes messy lives, helping them to see what true Christian faith really looks like. If you were to script out someone who would be antagonistic to the gospel, it would probably be her. And yet God used his word and saved her and has now given her a platform and an articulate one at that to speak the gospel in a very skillful and in our culture, a very appropriate way. So God has called us to prepare for different audiences and God has called us to prepare and respond to different responses. Number three, and finally, those who do respond need shepherding. And let's not forget this part, the end of chapter 14, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, she returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of God. First of all, new believers need help understanding that difficulties come with being a Christian. Okay, So those who respond positively need shepherding. But they need shepherded in understanding that difficulties will come when you become a Christian. Though they may not have been necessarily stoned, Paul's admonition to these new converts was necessary. Verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Believing right and living right does not mean that things go right. Okay, let me say that again. Believing right and living right doesn't mean that things will always go right. Okay, turn very quickly to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is a passage I'm guessing a number of you could probably quote and they're familiar with. James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're familiar with this text, you've heard it preached on, you may be aware that in verse 2, consider it all joy, or perhaps your translation says, count it all joy. That's an accounting term. I'm not an accountant. I'm not very good with numbers. Okay? I know how to hit the little sigma sign on Microsoft Excel that adds up them all. I'm good at that. Okay? I'm good at putting numbers in and, and you know, balancing things, and that's about the extent of it. Okay? What this text is doing is telling us is similar to what one would do as an accountant. Okay? So you have certain expenditures that you put in certain categories. And you have other expenditures that you put in other categories. And if the accountant just has a stack of receipts, okay? 
and he's looking at the receipts, or she's looking at the receipts. This one goes in the debits, okay? This one goes in the debits. This one goes in the credits. This one goes in the credits. Debits. There's not much emotion to that. It's just, it is what it is, okay? However, at the end of verse 2, when we encounter various trials, there's lots of emotion in that. And yet, what Paul, I'm sorry, what James is telling us here, what God is saying through James, consider it, reckon it, count it in the category of good things. So we have this category of good things and bad things. Joy, not happy, joy, and not joy. And take those trials that God has allowed and put it in that category of joy. Okay? Put it in there. That's where it goes. You see, it's not intuitive. We don't feel... I mean, if we have the stack of receipts, you know, it's not just, okay, this, there, here, here. It's not that. It's we're going through the pain and the emotion of the moment. We're going through that, and intuitively... You know, just our own reaction is not to put it in that category. But what God says is take that, that trial, and put it in that category. But you know, when we go through the trial and we're expected to put it in that category, it's nice to know why. And we're told why. Verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith brings about patience. I like how Pastor Kent defines patience to our, our, our younger children. It's wonderful. It's stuck with me. Patience is not getting what you want when you want it. And that's a good thing. Okay? Not getting what you want when you want it. It's the byproduct of that. And that's a good thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit. What we want is that problem to go. Be done. Okay? My arm is twisted. Uncle, uncle. Got it, God. Thank you. Now make it go away. God says no. Put it in there because I want to bring about endurance or patience in you. Okay, in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. Meaning this. You know what a veteran is? And I borrow this. There's there's another pastor that used this as an example for this, so I, I give him that credit. But you know what a veteran is? You think of, you know, Gage. So Gage came up here and spoke this morning, and he had just finished boot camp. And, and Gage is not the same Gage that he was 12, 12 weeks ago. Okay? So Gage comes up, and he stands, and he speaks, having gone through the 12 weeks of Marine Corps boot camp. Or if you have someone come as a veteran of, you know, a war or military service who's been in there for years, who they were at the beginning and who they were at the end are not the same thing. And that's a good thing. They've changed. They have experience. You know, in the athletic realm, you know, you have a veteran, someone who's maybe been in that particular sport for a long time, and he's responsible for coming alongside and mentoring the younger athletes. He's, you know, the wise old sage that speaks to them and helps them learn and be able to understand, okay, so when this happens, you do this, and you can definitely expect this to happen, and when you're under pressure, blah, blah, blah. The veterans are valuable resources, right? What verse 4 is calling for is spiritual veterans, Christian veterans. Where do you say that? Well, verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result. 
Meaning this, when Paul is going through these trials, he's being stoned, he's being rejected. When we go through the trials of carrying the gospel and people reject us, even sometimes on a dime, God is less concerned about us learning lessons than he is us changing. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we come from a trial and we say, well, what did God teach me out of that? Or what lessons have we learned? And those are, those are helpful. But if we don't change along the way, then we are twice damned, if I can put it that way. Because God just doesn't want this to be this intellectual activity of, okay, now I get it, now I got it. He wants us to change. Look at verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it may be that the trials of being a Christian, carrying a message that frankly gets rejected more often than it gets accepted, and more often than that, even brings about a level of ridicule and persecution and difficulty to which intuitively we don't want. The byproduct of that is to become a spiritual veteran. Becoming mature and complete. New believers need help understanding that. Because I'll tell you what, when people get saved, they get excited. And sometimes they think that, you know, wow, this is so great, so much is changing. But then it only gets worse for them. I mean, sometimes families just let them have it. Sometimes the temptations just ramp up. Sometimes the illnesses and the physical problems and all this, it's like, whoa, if getting saved brought about all this, I don't know if I want it. New believers need shepherded through that. That's what Paul's doing in Acts 14. But new believers also need leadership and local churches. Going back to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Oh, verse 21, after they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. There you go. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord whom they believed. So verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. I want to make a statement here, and it's not intentionally provocative, but it is really important. Disciple-making is more than just conversion, and new converts need more than just Jesus. Okay? This is the way that God has designed the body of Christ, the one-anotherness, so that it's more than Paul going from city to city, getting people saved, and off I go. I'm going to go find some more. No. Paul cared about their maturity, about their spiritual reproduction, about them being leaders and future disciple-makers. Though the Jews predominantly rejected the gospel, Paul spoke of the glories of Gentiles accepting Christ. Verse 27. We read this before, but I'll read it once more. When they had arrived and gathered at the church back at Antioch together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's a theme throughout the book of Acts, but it's also important to understand the role of the Gentiles in the church. It's not just this group of people that got saved and they're out there, and now you have the Jews that are kind of in there, and they've been in the in-group, and the Gentiles are out there, but now they're starting to come together. And so that's where we finish off for today. 
And we'll pick up next week in Acts chapter 15 because guess what? When you have older believers and you have younger believers, and maybe if you think back to my old neighborhood with the people from the Baha'i faith, disciples of Christ, with the same-sex couple, and with the, uh, the, the, the folks that had immigrated from the Dominican Republic that, that bring a completely different culture, when you take them, let's imagine they all get saved, and you put them all together in a church, think that's going to be seamless? Think it's just going to work out just hunky-dory? I mean, there's a spiritual unity that God produces, to be sure. We work hard at that, Ephesians 4, right? But there's going to be issues that come up. And there's going to be things that are done maybe a little bit differently. There's going to be questions that come up. And guess what? We shouldn't be surprised when they do. Does a newborn baby bring any type of change into a home? Any? Should we expect anything different when a spiritual newborn baby comes in? Or multiple spiritual newborn babies? Especially when they have their own backstories? And that's what happens in Acts 15. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's a messy thing. It is, again, part of what we put into the joy category. Okay? There's going to be a day where we never have to share the gospel ever again. Ever. We won't. Jesus will have come, and that role is done. Done. That's going to be an end. I mean, we're going to be worshiping God for eternity, but we're not going to be witnessing for eternity. Okay? We'll maybe tell somebody else about the gospel. They'll be like, yeah, totally. We're there, brother, sister. While we're here, let's redeem the time. Let's take advantage of the audience. Let's take advantage of the positive response. But then let's also be aware of the diversity of the audiences and prepare for the diversity of responses so that we don't just simply get set back and say, I'm done with that. God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to the Judeas and Samarias and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that playing out to our benefit. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for how good you are. Thank you for Paul and for Barnabas. Lord, thank you so much for our own church history, our family history. What a blessing it is to see what God did through these godly men. Lord, I think of those who we are called to influence for the gospel. It's so easy to talk about sharing the gospel, but Lord, sometimes it's frightening. Sometimes we're just tired. We don't want to. Lord, sometimes, frankly, we just are annoyed by the person that you've called us to. Sometimes we're frustrated by the fact that they've rejected it so many times. And we don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be like forceful. We want to be wise. And, and certainly, God, you call us to do all of those things. And certainly, there is a way that we communicate the message that takes into account who our audience is, how much we have in common, what they've received, what they've rejected even. But God, may we not lose hope. May we not lose heart and what you've called us to do. And each one of us, Lord, we're hardwired differently. We're gifted differently. And that speaks to the diversity within the body of Christ. But God, at the same time, you've called us to obey. And so I pray for these souls and those who might be watching on live stream or those who might be listening to this recording, that they might obey. That's all you call for. We can't save people. We can't change people's hearts. But you can. And you can do it 
in the most unlikely of circumstances or sometimes in the likeliest of circumstances. Regardless, Lord, we'll give you the glory for this opportunity. And Lord, if Christ were to come tonight, none of us would be disappointed. We would love that. We would rejoice in that. But we thank you for your mercy because there are some souls that still need to be born again. So thank you for giving us that hope and that message in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your time. Um, we are not going to have a closing hymn, but I know there's people around here you don't know. So just maybe get to know one or talk to them or shake their hand or tell them your salvation's testimony, something like that. All right, have a great, great evening and wonderful week. We pray for you. I hope you continue to pray for us.